The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Thank you. Thank you to Judy Strachan, Louise Discarude, Lori Lai, Reverend Vanessa Southern, and the entire First Unitarian Universalist of Society of San Francisco for inviting me to be with you in worship this week. I'm grateful for the opportunity and for the fellowship, and I look forward to exploring our text together and sharing with you a little bit more about sacred, our work, and how you might be a part of it. Before we begin, I do want to name that we will be talking about pregnancy in this sermon, and if that is a sensitive topic for you right now, I invite you to take care of yourself, and if you need to step out, please do. As you've heard already, Sacred is an alliance. We're a multi-faith, multiracial, national alliance of folks working for reproductive justice. We ground our work in a vision that in a sacred world, religious communities shift the culture to make reproductive justice a lived reality. Our mission is to create and equip a network of spiritual communities with liberative religious education and practices that shift our culture to advance reproductive justice. We affirm bodily autonomy and moral agency, we celebrate healthy sexuality, and we adv advocate for reproductive dignity to support the flourishing of all people and families. Now, when I say reproductive justice, I want you to be clear what I mean. The reproductive justice framework was developed by 12 black and indigenous women in Chicago in 1994, who recognized that a narrow focus on health or rights was not enough to meet the needs of their communities. What good is a right to choice if people couldn't access the care that they needed? If they didn't have reliable transportation to get to a clinic, if they didn't have childcare to take care of the children they already had while they were going to their appointments, if they really wanted to continue a pregnancy but knew that the job that they had wasn't gonna pay enough to feed another mouth. The founding mothers of reproductive justice define it with the following four tenets. The human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, the human right to have children, the human right not to have children, and the human right to parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. This framework is broad, it's intersectional. It combines human rights, social justice, and reproductive rights, all through the lens of black feminism. It shows me that all of our causes for justice are interconnected and fit in some way under that reproductive justice umbrella. And as you know, this work is crucial at a time like this, 
because we are up against a coordinated 40-year campaign that has co-opted a very narrow understanding of Christianity and weaponized it to build conservative right-wing political power. This power is rooted in control, patriarchy, sexism, racism, and domination. It takes a narrow interpretation of my tradition Christianity and uses it to manipulate culture and public policy to apply that particular understanding onto our entire country of 300 million people who have different beliefs, different values, religions, and cultures that we bring to our pluralistic democracy. Because we are clear where the attacks on democracy, bodily autonomy, family and communal values and justice come from, it is essential that we address these arguments and talking points head on. It is imperative that justice-minded people of faith and conscience do not give up the moral high ground to these particular actors operating in bad faith. That's why Sacred's work is primarily in culture change. We know that a majority of many people of faith from a variety of traditions across this country believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. But that's not the story that we hear in the culture. Sacred is multi-faith, multi-racial group, and I come to you today as Angela a pastor born, raised, and ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. I share part of my wisdom from my tradition and how is it is applicable to all of us working for justice in the United States, especially as we are in this season of Advent. And so I bring this lens of reproductive justice to my reading of the sacred texts like the story of Mary and how she comes to be the mother of God. I also need to give credit to our good partners at Soul Force and Reverend Alba Onofrio. They've created a resource called Mary's Choice, a new model for biblical womanhood that has greatly informed this sermon. So let's dive in. I imagine you have an image of Mary in your mind. Even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, and never have, she probably has light skin, brown hair, is wearing blue, holding a sweet, tender, mild baby Jesus. In art, she is often depicted with her head bowed, eyes down, which shows her quiet, pious, meek and mild, sexually pure virgin mother. Her virginity redeems her womanness, and she has been held up as a model for biblical motherhood, shaming women across the ages if they do not live up to this chest example. But I invite us to take another look at Mary and this story from Luke. Let's see where we can see glimpses of good news, justice, and liberation to apply to our lives today as we read the story through that lens of reproductive justice. The story I read earlier is in three parts. 
the Annunciation, when Gabriel comes to Mary, the Visitation, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and then the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. The story opens and places Gabriel, God's angel messenger sent to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, far from the center of power, Jerusalem. Nazareth is a backwater place in the middle of nowhere. So what is God up to sending an angel over there? The text identifies the subject of our story as a virgin, which as we know has some sexual overtones, but that's a translation choice. The word really means young unmarried woman or virgin, but it's clear that translators made an interpretation decision by focusing on the sexual status of the young woman. I might ask, what does that have to say about our translators more than it says about Mary in this moment, but that's another time. We learn that she is engaged to Joseph of David, which is an important connection. David was the king of Israel many, many, many generations before. His story is told in the Hebrew Bible. And similar to Mary, David was an unexpected choice as he was the youngest of seven sons and simply a shepherd when he was anointed to be a king. We finally hear Mary's name when Gabriel greets her. Mary is a young, unmarried, but connected to a man, Joseph, Jewish woman in the Middle East, and Gabriel, messenger of God, comes to Mary directly. Gabriel does not come to Joseph. Gabriel does not come to Mary's father, who would be the men in charge of her. He comes to Mary because she can speak for herself she can decide for herself how to respond to this message from God. At first, Mary is perplexed. Who is this? Gabriel, why are they here? What could they possibly want with me? Gabriel, like other angels, urges her not to be afraid, even though this is probably the most terrifying moment of her life. Okay, okay, Gabriel. But he's clear with her. His presence is not to be coercive. It's not about punishment. He says, Mary, you have found favor with God. He goes on to tell her that she will carry Jesus in her womb. He will be a king over her people. Now, this is some startling news, okay? We're in backwater. She's not connected to a man. And I'm, there's a king? Like, I'm not connected to anybody. King, how, what? Big questions, big questions. Um, and, and Mary is not ignorant to the ways of the world. She knows how women become pregnant. Her mama gave her the birds and the bees talk. She knows how this happens. And... and she knows, and she's got some questions, naturally. And what does Gabriel do? Gabriel does not chastise her for questions or doubts. 
Gabriel takes her seriously, gives her the information she's asking for, and then gave her someone else to talk to. You see, Elizabeth, her cousin, has also had a divine encounter to become pregnant. Gabriel offers Mary a connection, but Mary makes the decision all on her own. She doesn't consult her father. She doesn't talk to Joseph or a priest or anyone else. In her own heart and of her own free will, she gives her consent. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Mary said, yes. But this yes was not without a risk. Again, she is young, unmarried, Jewish woman living under occupation in a small town. It is possible that Joseph would not want to marry her anymore. She could be socially shunned, she might not have access to the economic resources needed to care for herself and her child. And still she said, yes. I was talking about this passage with a group of pastors in Texas a few years ago, and they asked me some really good questions. What if Gabriel went to other women before he came to Mary? What if there were others who said no? This was simply too much to bear. How many no's did Gabriel and God receive before they got Mary's yes? Mary commits to this pregnancy and quickly travels to see Elizabeth, who has had a divine intervention in her reproductive life. It is Elizabeth and the baby who will become John the Baptist who are the first to recognize Mary as the mother of God. I see a clue of Mary's faith and why she said yes through her song of praise, Thy Magnificat. Mary knows that God looks with favor on those that society dismisses. Her God scatters the proud, brings the powerful down from their thrones, lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry with good things, and sends the rich away empty. Even if she loses everything, she knows that God is with those who have lost everything. She stands in her power and in her agency, Mary knows who she is, Mary knows who God is, and yes, Mary knows what she has been called to do. So how is this good news for us here and now? The story shows divine showing up in unexpected places, not with curses of damnation, but with offers of blessing and open conversation. The divine does not heap shame, judgment, and stigma upon this unconventional reproductive story, but enables the miracle after trusting Mary to make her decision and waiting for her yes. 
I want to be clear that even though God favors Mary and she becomes pregnant and God enables Elizabeth to be pregnant in her old age in the geriatric pregnancy world, as our doctors like to call it, that does not mean that infertility, miscarriages, or fetal anomalies are punishments from God or signs of disfavor. What Mary's song teaches us is that the divine is with those in their misfortune, in their grief, in their sorrow, in their long times of waiting. And we can listen to where people are and join them wherever they are on their reproductive journey. As we make reproductive decisions throughout our life, we can be comforted by Mary's story knowing that we have what we need to make those decisions for ourselves. We can be trusted to know our needs and desires for our lives, our families, and our futures. How might the world be different if more of us heard this interpretation of this story? Perhaps we could extend compassion and empathy to others in our lives who are making decisions to parent or not to parent. Perhaps we could show practical support like Elizabeth and welcome people into our home as a way to give support during their pregnancy. This is the kind of work that sacred congregations engage in regularly. We have recognized you, First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco, as the second group to join sacred congregations. You have already engaged in this process of education, reflection, and public commitment to reproductive justice. But this designation celebration is only halfway through the process of being a sacred congregation. You've learned, studied, made commitments, and now is the time to live out those commitments through action. As I was talking to your leaders, they were like, when do we get to act? I'm ready to do things. Now's the time. <laughs> you get to live these values publicly through pastoral and spiritual care, including reproductive justice in worship or educational offerings, providing direct support to people in your community who need reproductive health care, and participating in political organizing and advocacy work. In talking with your leaders, they have already identified some key partnerships with Planned Parenthood of Northern California and Access RJ, so you can connect directly with patients seeking care in abortion clinics. Lori Lai shared with me in our conversation that even though California is a high access state, it, there are only 48% of the counties in California that actually have a clinic. And, and so the question continues to be, how accessible is abortion care in a high access state if people still have to travel up to or over 100 miles to get the care that they need? What about within your own community? How can you better support families and children in your midst? You made a promise to two young ones today. How can you continue to love and support them and care for their families as this is 
one of the hardest times to raise a family in this world and in our lifetime. What do you need here and now for more flourishing? Again, I'll be talking more about these potential action steps after the service at the luncheon, and so I invite you to join me for more discussion. At Sacred, we say everyone has a reproductive story, even if they haven't parented children. And everyone has a faith story, even if they don't belong to a particular congregation. What we do is we create and hold space for people to weave together these faith and reproductive stories free from shame, judgment, and stigma. This morning, we've taken another look at the story of Mary, the mother of God, holding it up for deeper learning and understanding. We've heard Sam share part of his faith and reproductive story with all of us. Later in Mary's story, after she has given birth to Jesus and received visitors, the text says she treasured these words in her heart and pondered them. May we take some time here and now to ponder these words in our own heart. What questions, curiosities, aha moments are you holding in this moment? How does this story relate to your own faith and reproductive story? Where in your body do you carry these stories? I invite us to take a moment of silence, to breathe, connect with ourselves, and ponder these words. I want you to imagine me in middle school. A little bit less facial hair than you see now. I skipped a grade, so at this point I was quite small. And I also didn't have a care in the world. I work in politics now, but back then my main concern was video games. In one class we were supposed to read the news, pay attention to current events, and I barely knew that John Kerry was the presidential candidate at that time, much less anything to do about global warming or wealth inequality, the criminal justice system, or reproductive justice. But I have an older sister, seven years older, and she's always been engaged in social justice work of all sorts. And one day when she was driving me home, she gave me the talk. You know, the pro-choice talk. Uh, I don't remember any of the details. I think I was at that age where my response was probably one word, okay. But because of that conversation, even before I really knew what a Democrat or Republican was, my first political philosophy was as a feminist. This part of my relationship with my sister wasn't a one-off. She's a queer woman of color, so she would also tell me about LGBTQ plus rights, about racial justice and other issues. She invited me to events like queer proms and the vagina monologues. She gave me books like The New Jim Crow. And it wasn't always social justice related either. We would also just play games together or go to concerts, eat food. We still do all of those things because all of them are part of our relationship with each other. 
And those things might all seem different, spending fun time together versus racial justice, LGBTQ rights, reproductive justice. But to me, they weren't different. It's not just that all oppressions are interconnected. It's not just the Emma Goldman quote that if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. But to me, all of that was related to my relationship with my sister, the fun stuff and the heavy stuff, justice for one group of people and for another. I think in UU circles, we often spend a lot of time in our heads. And when we're thinking about things like reproductive justice, we think about all the rational reasons why it's important for people to have autonomy over their bodies, or the historical reasons, or arguments and rebuttals to people who have behaved hypocritically or inconsistently. But the thing that brought me to support reproductive justice wasn't any rational reason, though there are many. The original reason I supported reproductive justice was human connection, my relationship with my sister. There's a lot of ways to do justice work, but I try to follow the example that my sister set, not leading with numbers and documentaries, but instead focusing on my relationship with another person, caring for them, dancing with them, being invested in their life, respecting their inherent worth and dignity, even if they don't know all that much about politics, and at some point, being vulnerable with them, sharing my values and what's important to me and why I care, not just because of how many people are affected, but because of how I'm affected, not asking somebody to support a movement, but asking them to support me.